Mr. Yarbrough, I'd like to ask you what you think about the role miners' wives have played in this strike. Well, they've certainly played a big role in it. I would hate to think that my wife would play this kind of role. Why? Well, there's been some conduct that I don't like to think that our American women have to revert to. to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 166 today, and back to Erica's choice, what are we talking about today? Well, it's the most wonderful time of the year. That means it's Septerica, <laughs> which we haven't talked about in a little while. So I chose Harlan County, USA from 1976, directed by Barbara Koppel, and it covers the Brookside Strike in Harlan County, Southeast Kentucky, that started in 1973 as a reaction to the coal miners joining the UMWA. And then Duke Power rejected their contract. The strike involved 180 coal miners and their wives and lasted for more than 13 months. This film won Best Documentary at the 49th Annual Academy Awards. Now, if you've been following us for a bit, you may have noticed that I've previously used Septerica to highlight documentaries. I'm a big documentary fan, so this always seemed like a fun way to showcase our favorites. I talked about Grey Gardens previously, and then in other months, I've done Let There Be Light and Michael Jackson's This Is It. So I wanted to come back to that documentary spotlight for this Septerica. The only minor quibble I have with all that is about the best time of the year part, because we all know Halloween is on the horizon. Okay, we can debate about that later, sir. In the meantime, we'll be talking about some documentaries on the Patreon, too, if you want to come check out our previous episode on Original Cast Album Company and an upcoming episode on Six by Sondheim. So I picked Harlan County, USA, because it blew me away the first time I saw it. I wasn't super excited to come back to it because it is a demoralizing experience on a lot of fronts while still being incredibly invigorating. So how did you find this film? Do you remember your first experience with it? Oh yeah, I definitely do. I found Harlan County, USA through the Criterion Collection. It's spine number 334 in that collection, so at least relative to now, it was fairly early in the run when it seemed like the collection was easier to keep up with. I got into that collection at spine number 231, The Testament of Dr. Mabuza, so it was only a hundred or so titles down the road from when I was first introduced to the collection. Now, when I checked the date on it again while we were doing this, I was surprised to find that the Criterion Collection didn't release that until 2010. I think of it as coming much earlier than that because I feel like I've known it for a long time. I don't know if it's the same for you. My first experience with it was home viewing, obviously, and it made a major impression on me. I think it's one of the greatest documentaries ever made. It's just gut-wrenching, like you say. And the power of it is one big reason that I think I have that feeling of knowing it 
all my life. It's such an eternal struggle that I feel like it's in our DNA practically. We've all known this story forever. It was a home viewing for me. I saw it a few decades ago, but it has stuck with me the whole time. Now, before we jump into the film, though, I want to mention how Barbara Koppel came to this story. Because she had initially set out to focus on the effort to unseat the deeply unpopular Tony Boyle. Yeah, we see him in the film. He was president of the UMWA. When the miners went on strike at the Brookside mine that we see here, she went with her crew to film it because the UMWA had helped organize that strike. And she decided to stick with this story instead and then proceeded to stay for years. So are you ready to get into the film? Yeah, let's do it. I don't know about you, but the power of music forms my initial impression of the film. And as it weaves in and out of our introduction to Harlan County, of the coal mines, and of the miners themselves, what is it, do you think, about traditional American music that makes us feel like we have always known the songs? Hazel Dickens, who is on the soundtrack multiple times, talks about how music pulls everyone together, and I think she's right. Did you have a favorite song or contributor to the soundtrack? It's sort of that thing I was just saying. We have known these songs forever in the same manner that we've known this story forever. They are wrought from universal hardship and struggle and triumph occasionally. Which is where both you and I are from. We're not from... Central Park West or anything like that. Hard Scrabble, Oklahoma and Virginia. Yeah, I was thinking about that. It may be different for people not raised with it. I was certainly steeped in it. I think you were too. But we may be betraying a little bit of a bias with our assumption that everyone knows these songs. That's true. I don't know that everyone might have the same fundamental experience with folk and country music, but I certainly did. I feel that stuff in my bones. It's the honesty and directness of it that affects me. And coming from my end of things out on the Great Plains, it was Woody Guthrie who was my intro to all that stuff. The tradition of murder ballads, that obviously looms large over my appreciation of the form. And it's proto-punk rock in a lot of ways in that it's often just three chords and a cloud of dust, basically. And the movie catches me right away because it basically starts with one of my absolute favorite songs of all time, Dark as a Dungeon. Maybe the definitive coal miner song. Come All You Coal Miners is another favorite of mine, specifically as a rallying cry to organize. And then I want to give a special shout out to Roscoe Holcomb. He's one of the most distinctive purveyors of that high lonesome sound that ever picked up a banjo. He's like a singing wraith, almost. These skeletal old guys that we see singing a cappella here with these keening tenor voices and the hitch in them that puts a chill in my bones in the absolute best way. The plaintive nature of how and what they sing, it moves me. It always has. I'm right there with you. I love all the songs, and especially those that we see sung in person or at meetings, for example, by the coal miners, their families, like Florence Reese, for example. I, though, particularly love Hazel Dickens' last song of the film, which she wrote especially for the film. She was commissioned by Barbara Koppel. And that's, they'll never keep us down. I wish that somehow that were true, but I know a lot of us feel down at many times in our lives. 
And that's certainly exemplified by the first things that we see in the film, watching these coal miners go down that conveyor belt on their stomachs into the bowels of the mines. And everything is so loud and violent, yet the coal comes out relatively quietly. It just seems like people don't matter. Well, this is a place and a way of life that I think a lot of people at the time might not have been wholly familiar with. So it could be a little shocking to see these conditions. And the working conditions and the nature of the job are nearly unthinkable for a lot of us, even for the short term, much less your lifetime. It just takes such an enormous toll on you physically, and I'm sure mentally as well. And that's the cruel lesson that's been true of work like this since time immemorial. To the people calling the shots anyway, people don't matter in the grand scheme of things. It's all exploitation of resources and labor is the most abundant and exploitable of all. What is it that they say about how expendable these guys are to the company? We can always hire another man, but you got to buy that mule. So do you have an opinion about mines or mining? It's not really a huge Oklahoma thing, right? These days it would be more fracking than mining. Got it. Now, whatever opinion you had, was it changed by viewing this? I wouldn't say that. If anything, it's been changed in the last several years as technology evolved. In recent years, I feel like it's become more and more obvious that it just isn't necessary, nor does it seem sustainable ultimately. Now that's easy for me to say since my livelihood does not depend on it, but there are just some shifts that we have to accept as technology changes. No one is out there crying for typesetters right now, for example. Old jobs disappear, new jobs spring up in their place. Some people are just unfortunately caught flat-footed by that and are ill-prepared to make a transition because some of these guys have been doing this job literally since they were children. It's all they know. That's just the nature of progress, though. It leaves some of us behind. It will happen to us, I'm sure, at some point one of these days, but you won't see me crying about the unfairness of it. I understand that that's how she goes. But I don't want to downplay what we're watching here in this particular film because these are a complicated set of considerations that all these folks are having to weigh. This is no joke. This is life and death. Black lung, for instance, must be a horrible way to live and then die. We have to just look long and hard at the metaphor of a life in the mine just being a long process of digging your own grave. Pardon me, though. One scientist in the film said oh, black lung may not be related to coal mining. That son of a bitch. Oh I, my God. I couldn't stand that guy. No, it was awful. Now, do you have an opinion about unions? Because we get a quick history overview of the United Mine Workers of America joining the union. And because the company wouldn't accept that contract, the miners going on strike. And we see there's a lot of dissatisfaction with union leadership and the coal operators are no better. So who can you depend on? Well, I have no sympathy for a scab. I can tell you that right up front. I am absolutely pro-union. Without organization, nothing good can happen for the rank and file. Organization is key. One man alone cannot stand up to this. Now, I do believe that there is the odd good man intent on doing the right thing for his brethren in those organizations, but I also believe it is a corrupt system even among the good guys, quote unquote. I don't know if you felt the same way, but as I'm watching this, I got the sense that Yablonsky was the last hope for righteous representation, and when he and his family were killed, that was it. 
Yes, I am with you because really, when I think about it, I grew up watching Frank Capra films from the 30s and 40s, and I believed in unions. I grew up knowing who John L. Lewis was, for <laughs> Pete's sake. I mean, I believe that people who were trying to bust the unions were corrupt fascists. But I was also watching these movies in the 70s and 80s, which were notorious for the very real corruption happening in many unions. Now, as viewers of history, we can see how the decades of the 50s and 60s fed into this anti-union sentiment. It's got a lot of faces. There's the pro-capitalist anti-unionist in the let's make all the money we can and destroy all the land and all the people we can destroy. There's the worker anti-unionist who doesn't want to get exploited by the union while it steals their money, which happens. We know that. And in Yablonsky, we see that some in the union are ready to commit murder to move to the top of that power pile. I'm glad we got to see kind of all the sides in this story, all the many different kinds of villains, because it really shows us that the workers are the ones caught in the middle. Yeah, you ask who we can depend on, and you briefly touched on this. Miller unseated Boyle in that election, unexpectedly, I think, in 1972, but then he turned out to be ineffectual and indecisive. It was said that whoever had his ear last had the most influence on him. So who do you trust? No one completely. They're all fallible, some of them supremely so. So you just give that trust conditionally and then you remain vigilant. And there's strong anti-union sentiment today, including and especially in the state that we live in, Texas. We've heard these same platitudes that we see in the film. Higher wages equals higher prices. It's parroted by seemingly working class people. So I want to talk about our blue collar episode way back when and that line about the boss is going to pit the working class against each other. So then who still believes the line that the man feeds you? Does no one question who benefits from all of this strife? You're talking about ideological lines now, and that has nothing to do with evidence, reason, or common sense, and that happens on both sides. We keep talking about the eternal nature of this oppression, the eternal nature of these expressions in song and story. It's the same for the tribal nature of human beings. And it's a cruel irony that the people who repeat those sentiments are the ones that are often most harmed by these systems. It basically just has to continuously be divide and conquer through misinformation campaigns, through promoting ignorance, division, and strife. It's imperative to those in power that it stays that way because we outnumber them a thousandfold otherwise. Are you starting to feel like maybe the streets should run red with the blood of the capitalist oppressors at this point? There are at least one or two of those guys that I wouldn't mind seeing that happen to, for sure. Now, you mentioned this a bit earlier. There are multiple instances of the elders of the community talking about what they went through in the 1930s. Bloody Harlan County, for example. That organizing and the violence that came with it seems to just be woven into the fabric of their lives. And then when we see the conditions the community lives in still, no running water or indoor plumbing, it's hard to tell if we're in 1883 1923 or 1973. And these same elders tell us that law enforcement are definitely not on their side. And as the group enters the first month of the strike, this is certainly evident. 
Yeah, Bloody Harlan in the 1930s. That is no exaggeration, that name that it's been given. And it literally was almost the entire decade. It was 1931 to 1939. And when they drew up sides back in those days, law enforcement being on the side of the coal companies, that's awfully telling. And it has not changed. I really do feel like the presence of these cameras in this particular case made a huge difference because these state police that show up, they would be busting heads otherwise. I have no doubt. Yeah, it's pretty amazing to see that nothing had changed at that point. And I think there are always going to be somebody like Basil Collins, always judges in the pockets of the powerful, always somebody at the top who needs to say on top. Fortunately, things didn't get as drastic in the 70s as they did in the 30s, but you're right. There are very few things that distinguish life now versus earlier times. This poverty level subsistence has been a constant throughout the decades. Now, I want to mention the thing that really hooked me the first time I saw this, and that is the women of the community, their role, what the strike means to them. Do you understand what the stakes are for them? We're talking about starvation, which is no joke, access to any sort of medical care or education. And Lois Scott is a big voice here. What did you think of her? And ultimately, if you were in one of their positions, would you go to jail to support your family? Would you carry a gun? Would you lay down in the road? Would you get shot at? The women's role in supporting this strike, it made a big impression on me as well. You cannot overestimate how important they are to this. Their participation was critical to the success of the strike. There were times when it seems like only their dedication to the cause kept it going. The men seemed to be flagging in their energy and enthusiasm sometimes. And you can understand that as the strike continues to wear on. But yeah, this issue, it affects every single man, woman, and child in that community. So it is essential that the community as a whole rises up to meet that. The stakes are as high as they can be for everyone. It's their literal existence. And I like Lois a lot because she gets things done. She shames the sheriff into doing his job with that arrest warrant for Basil Collins. And the way that she does it, I think, is what's important about that. It shows how intuitive and canny she is, playing on his weaknesses and his perception of himself. And when it comes to the lengths that they had to go to to get the job done, I like to think I would do the same. I've fortunately never been in the position where I've had to go to jail or carry a gun to protect my livelihood. And to me, it would have to be more than that. I have the luxury of saying no job is worth that. But that's what I was saying just a moment ago. It's not just a job in this case. It is their very existence that is at stake. Well, I kind of thought of Lois as a loudmouth, and that doesn't really change. And that's not a bad thing, because I'm glad she was there. She seems like the linchpin, whether you like her or not. And when I look at what the stakes are and imagine myself as living where and how they live, I'd like to think I'd be just as tough as they all have to be. And Lois, she didn't have to do any of that, but you know, she did. Because if not her, who? You see, a lot of people who seem to shirk what they consider to be the collective responsibility, and she is the only one really putting her life where her mouth is. Now back to music for just a second here, with... Hazel Dickens' voice and songs, I'm reminded a lot of Loretta Lynn, and she was really my first big intro into the coal mining world. I also see a lot of the film Wanda, 
in this film, not just the landscape. Do you have other comparisons or touchstones? Because I mentioned Capra earlier, I'm thinking of Mr. Smith and Meet John Doe especially. My recommendation at the end is probably the most direct link I have to this, but I see plenty of others. You mentioned Blue Collar, and that's a great touchstone, I think. Mate One is the first thing, though, that comes to mind otherwise. That is a must-see for anyone who is interested in minor stories. The Molly Maguires with Sean Connery, that's another one that I like a lot. And then if we're talking about labor, strike-breaking, corruption of the unions, all that, I enjoy Hoffa quite a bit. And if you want to see the permanent rape of the land, go to How Green Was My Valley. It's that dead-endedness in Wanda, how she could be one of these women living in that community trying to get out. And Loretta Lynn, too, she was ready to get out. I'm trying to think of comparisons to people who stayed in those environments, but it seems like they're all dead. So celebrate Septerica with us. Come for the nonfiction film, stay for the high mortality rate. You know I like those crowd pleasers. Now, speaking of really terrible choices ahead of you, we talk about the choice to stay on strike, work the mine, or leave the state completely due to lack of jobs. And we see some of the workers going all the way to Wall Street to try to raise awareness of the strike itself. And one of the cops that's casually chatting with one of the strikers, he mentions that he makes $7 an hour, which, by the way, is still basically the minimum wage today. In those dollars, it was great pay. So if you were the one faced with those options, what would you do? I find that interaction with that New York City cop extremely interesting. All the contrary forces in play there. If you're the miners, you have to take your cause to the biggest stage where the most eyes will be on you. But does that also open your worldview a little, getting out of the holler like that? Maybe you begin to see that a life outside the mines is more a possibility than you thought just by being exposed to more experiences. If all you are surrounded by on a daily basis are others like you that only know this way of life, maybe you aren't as inclined to imagine something different for yourself. It's the same thing that we talked about in My Brilliant Career. This idea that innately you know there has to be something more. And this trip to Wall Street is evidence of that for these guys. So would you remain motivated in this case? Could you sustain your energy for the cause if you realize there might be another considerably less dangerous path you could take? You know my answer to this. With my inclinations, I probably would have been one of those kids that got out of there as soon as the getting was good. You know I'm that same kid. That's what I did. But it feels like a pretty privileged position to speak from because I have an education. And more importantly, I had access to an education. I have skills. So what if you don't? And is it different for the men and the women? I think of them in this particular case as a unit, the men and women, because the women's fates are so inextricably intertwined with their husbands. It might not be the same everywhere in every time period, but in this case, I don't think you can distinguish between the two. What happens to one happens to all. Well, we do see incredibly sad examples of that. The young girl, she's just 16, with a baby whose equally young husband was murdered. And that's not the only tragedy happening here. We see the West Virginia 1968 Farmington Mine disaster. And then we know about countless other disasters before and since. 
With Farmington, just to give you some context, that was in November 1968, and 99 miners were trapped inside the Fairmont mine. 21 miners were able to escape, but 78 were still trapped. All of those 78 died, and many of their bodies were never recovered. Another disaster that I'm thinking of, it was actually covered in the recent Crown series. That's the Aberfan disaster in Wales, and that was in 1966, just two years before the West Virginia disaster. And this one killed 116 children and 28 adults. And that's because a school and houses were buried under the slurry from the mine. No one from the National Coal Board was ever charged or prosecuted. They were never fined. And the head of the National Coal Board refused to go to Aberfan and decided to have the parents of children who had been killed in the accident prove that these parents were close to their children so they could get 500 pounds from the board. There's just a litany of these examples. It's never over and it's never just grief. When I watch the reactions to this, it's never just mourning. It is righteous anger, and rightly so, because these were preventable in a lot of instances. The West Virginia mine failed something like 16 inspections in a row before that. What do you have to do to get people to take care of other people? You have to have a whole lot of them murdered. And we see tons of violence happening in this film, including the death of that young man that I mentioned a moment ago, his murderer never put on trial. And there are debates about how violent they need to get. And it is always striking to me that, like the untouchables, some people will or can only bring a knife to a gunfight. It seems to come down to a debate of if they have guns, we have to as well, or if we bring guns, someone will die. Fight or not fight, kill or not kill, wait or not wait, accept the contract or be killed. Yeah, it took that specific murder, that young man dying, literally to put an end to this. And I think most of the participants were surprised that it was just one death, the way they talked about it. Now, it's apples and oranges, but it's something that we hear echoed in the thoughts of someone like Malcolm X. We are nonviolent with those who are nonviolent with us. To ask our people to be nonviolent in the face of what they have endured is doing them a disservice, an injustice even. So sometimes you have to speak their language and you can argue about the metaphysical cost of taking up that battle, but I do not believe it is injurious to your soul to defend yourself. Again, those in charge, they do everything in their power to punish and restrict these workers. They're not enforcing the laws equally. They're setting up ridiculous limitations on what is lawful picketing and how many or how few actually can even be assembled. And then violence in return, it's such a tricky proposition because you're talking about this escalates to what point, where does it even end? And then that could be exactly the leverage that these larger entities need to make the argument that this whole thing, this whole union thing needs to be shut down completely right now, no discussion. If the workers actually employ the same tactics and use of force that the bosses did, then it would easily lead to a violent overthrow, I think. But then with our corrupt nature, does that cycle just start all over again with the people who are newly installed at the top? Well, to continue with the downbeat discussion, ultimately, 
At UMWA, there's a new contract. It gets ratified across the board, but it includes a no-strike clause, which is often, as we're told, the only bargaining chip these miners have. So at the end of the day, this strike, the new contract, what was their struggle for? Has anything changed? Will anything ever change? The struggle is for even the slightest measure of autonomy and control over your own life. And in some cases, maybe just the placebo effect of thinking that you have that. To me, it seems like not much has changed ultimately, but it is hard for me to imagine in my position what an improvement that these incremental changes might make in these folks' lives. And the overarching struggle will never change. They're never going to give you anything. You will have to claw and scratch and literally risk death to get any little concession. They will have to fight for every inch, always. I think about what one of those old timers said, that they fought for the same things, but they pointed out that each time they asked for a little bit more. And I don't want to look at this life and death struggle as a wasted endeavor, but it's hard not to feel that way. So let's talk about some other highs and lows. Did you have a favorite bit of dialogue or a favorite person? Who's your favorite villain? I like Sudi Cruisenberry an awful lot. She's the one I think I admire most. When she delivers that speech talking about, take my man, I'll shed no tears. That's my favorite bit of dialogue in the whole thing because in just one simple phrase, she helps me fully understand the scope of this struggle and what is actually at stake here, what's important, and I believe in her 100%. Her plain spoken way, it appeals to me an awful lot. And as far as villains, favorite might not be the right word, but Tony Boyle is up there as far as the worst human beings we encounter, but my utmost hostility is reserved for Basil Collins. There are few characters, real or fictional, that I detest as much as him. He is absolute trash, a scumbag, and a bully, and I hope he got the death he deserved. Yeah, the villains are too numerous here. You mentioned the ones I had on my list. Even Arnold Miller, who took over, he's a pretty oily guy, even for the 70s. And yeah, Basil Collins, he is practically a caricature of the southern bull piece of shit, but he is horribly real. I had some other favorite bits, too. The term gun thugs has been my favorite since I first saw this. And you're a prisoner out there anyway. You might as well be in jail. Favorite person? I like the old timers talking about being on those first picket lines. And then that little moment of happiness, the kid in the wash tub getting a bath who's making a mess. And that's maybe the only happy moment that that kid's going to get. So I've mentioned some of the other docs that I've covered, and if you had to compare and pick a favorite style from among, say, the Maisels, Pennebaker, Koppel, or Para Lawrence, who would you pick? That is tough, because I like the poetry in Para Lawrence so much. Those are something so unique in the world of documentary. And then Pennebaker captured some of my favorite people and moments and interesting events throughout history. Koppel, I love for her willingness to get in it up to her eyeballs and just keep going, no matter how dangerous. That scene when she faces down Basil Collins over her press credentials is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. 
And she admits that she was acting out of a little ignorance and a lot of bravado when that was happening because she didn't know at the time just how dangerous he was. So fair play to her. Yeah, he possibly tried to order her murder. I would have to go with the Maisels ultimately, though, because I think their ability to win the trust of a subject and then not betray that trust, that is absolutely crucial and makes for the best documentaries. Their body of work speaks to me the most for that reason. Well, I'm sorry. As Septerica, I deem that you are incorrect. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. They're all so different, obviously. And strangely enough, I kind of came to all of them around the same time. So I don't have that instance of the first love as the enduring love. But truly, though, Pere Lawrence, he really did change my perceptions. And I just love that bombastic poetic style. And speaking of bombast, the film Roger and Me, that was really my first example of the main villain of the piece not really being present, not being a character. And here, it's the same case. Carl Horn is the big boss, and like Roger, he's only present at a meeting. And then every person above him, like the oil companies, we never hear from. What do you think of that style? Well, I think you hinted at this just a second ago. I think villains are plentiful on every single level of the piece, so Carl Horn isn't even necessary except maybe as a totem. If he were intentionally more elusive, it might change the story, but he doesn't seem inaccessible or like there is a buffer of middle managers between him and the rank and file. He routinely makes appearances at stuff like the stockholders meeting where we see him present. It's part of the job, and it makes for a great moment in that case when that worker is telling him, I will be right here looking you in the eye until we both go down together. So it felt different than Roger and me with all of that dodging and receptionists running interference sort of thing. Maybe I don't remember Roger and me that well, but there is no shortage of scoundrels here. Yes men, people looking to line their pockets, and just straight up thugs. You already mentioned that one son of a bitch who is trying to say that constantly breathing coal dust isn't hazardous. The power structure you are fighting is immense and total, is what we have to understand. The conflict of interest in the local legal system is just insane. And then Roger and me didn't have that sort of looming threat of violence the same way. Carl Horn I am not scared of. Tony Boyle, on the other hand, he was both violent and dumb. It's easy to spot that kind of trouble, but it's also impossible to stop it if they are willing to go that much farther than you. I like that you use the word totem because... This concept really reminded me of kind of the great and powerful Oz. It really doesn't matter who the person is or what they say. The king is dead. Long live the king. It's forever this way, and we will never get our hands on any one person. So a lot of us these days are focused on stories from the participants themselves, as opposed to their stories being told by an outsider. Does that make a difference here to you? It does. It makes a difference in that way that a good journalist always does. People on the inside are not always the most accomplished at storytelling. Sometimes a story needs assembly that the immediate participants aren't capable of, or it needs an interpreter. I prefer it that way, actually. A third party, even a biased one, which Koppel clearly was, there's no mistaking her editorial intent here, that almost always works better for me, especially when they have such excellent narrative instincts. 
And you mentioned this earlier, and the miners themselves specifically cited Barbara Koppel and her crew as a reason why the strike was finally ended and that there wasn't more bloodshed. And I wonder if the crew had never been there, knowing what we know now, would we know the voices of this strike? I think it's just like that union organizer said at the very end, it would be a two inch column in the Harlan County Register that would be folded up and stuck in the bottom of the birdcage. Now I have one last question for you before we get out of here. Okay. I don't know if it's the same for you based on the question you just asked, but I have come to not enjoy contemporary advocacy docs at all, I feel like. If I was to see a similar thing about Amazon labor practices right now, for instance, I would be interested in the story. I would probably read articles about it, but I wouldn't sit down and watch the film the same way I would watch this. Is there a difference for you? What is the difference if there is one? Why do you think you don't want to watch them? Is it the voice itself? Has it gone too far over into advocacy? That may be a little bit of it. There's just so much strident earnestness too that I find a little disingenuous. It's a combination of a lot of factors. It's the visual presentation. It's the authorial voice. It's all kinds of things. But we have shifted into a mode of expression in those particular formats that I just don't like at all. For me, with some of those, I'm thinking of a specific example around the whole VW gas emissions problem. It's the insertion of the storyteller into the story, that it's all filtered through this lens of how does this affect me? Nick Broomfield syndrome, basically. Yeah. And in most of those cases, I don't care about that person. I want to know what the story is. I don't want to know your thoughts on the story. So I do find with the contemporary documentaries that I'm watching, the ones that I gravitate to involve no outside narrator, at least one that I see or hear. It's the assembly of the story, which is fascinating. And if the maker lets it stand on its own two feet, I'm right there with them. So I think what we're saying is some of these people could take a page from the book of the Maisels. Stay out of the frame. So then, what's your recommendation for this episode? I am going to make two recommendations this time. Oh, you dirty dog. That's unprecedented in this show. <laughs> In addition to a related film, I'm also going to recommend that anyone who is interested in this film, the life these folks lead, or the stories they are trying to tell, go and check out the Smithsonian Folkways Anthology of American Folk Music. It is one of the foundation recordings in my musical education. It's a six-disc set, and it comes with a huge booklet as well. It features some of the most crucial recordings of American folk music ever made, and it deals with a lot of the subjects that we're still talking about today. For my movie recommendation, I am going with Salt of the Earth from 1954. That's directed by Herbert J. Biberman, written by Michael Wilson, and produced by Paul Jericho, all of whom were blacklisted during the Red Scare. This is the granddaddy of American labor films for me. It's about a zinc mining town in New Mexico where the workers go on strike. And the strongest parallel, and the main reason that I recommend it, is because of the way the women are central to this story. In this case, in Salt of the Earth, it's illegal for the men to pick it, so the wives have to step in and do it in their place, exploiting a loophole. It's mostly non-professional, so you know I love that. It's actual miners and their families who are playing most of these roles. 
And it is a little on the simplistic side. There are no shades of gray here, but it is a pioneering work in terms of what it has to say about the labor movement and its place in American society, and especially the way it positions the women in the story as central to the movement's survival. What about you? I picked Stop at Nothing, the Lance Armstrong story from 2014, directed by Alex Holmes. And it covers Lance Armstrong's Tour de France wins, his history of doping, his history of lying about doping, his efforts to intimidate those who knew that he was doping, the cover-up, and then the final admission that he had been doping the whole time. It's honestly, for me, terrifying to watch because there are a million clips of him turning those shark eyes on the camera and declaring whatever he was going to declare since he was about 19 years old. Clips of him staring people down while he lies. The biggest question that you and I were chatting about is what has he convinced himself of? What is his level of sociopathy or psychopathy? I don't know if he convinced himself of all of this or if he just didn't care, so there was no moral blind spot to even have. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Salt of the Earth and Stop at Nothing, the Lance Armstrong story. And that brings us to the end of episode 166. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. We have also added a simple donation button to the website, so if Patreon isn't your thing and you'd rather just make a one-time PayPal donation to help keep the lantern lit, you can go to magiclanternpodcast.com and just look for the donate button in the upper right corner under the header. And that's in the main drop-down menu if you are on a mobile device. We appreciate everyone's support so much. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore casts. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time especially Andy Wolverton, Jeff Duncanson, and Richard Sales. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. You can find our show on Audible, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts you can find us. Thanks to the person who recently left us an anonymous five-star rating on iTunes. If you would like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 